Hello, welcome to the Nagorno-Karabakh miniseries, produced by Regional Past Caucasus in collaboration with Eastern Dialogue. In today's episode, we are going to talk about Armenia's struggle to overcome the painful post-war reality. Our guest is Olesia Vartanyan, Crisis Group Senior Analyst for the South Caucasus region. For more than 10 years, she researches and produces reports on regional security issues in the South Caucasus. Before joining Crisis Group in 2016, Olesia worked as a journalist and received the first EU Monitoring Mission Special Prize in Peace Journalism. Olesia, thank you very much for finding time to join us. Yeah, it's very nice to be with you. Since the end of the Artsakh War back in November 2020, a lot has happened both in Armenia and in the region. Which event has been the most unexpected and surprising for you in the last two and a half months? I think there were many things uh, that probably caught uh, us all at the surprise. I personally certainly was shocked really to see what was happening in Yerevan uh, the night when uh, we all learned about the ceasefire statement, when groups of people came together and they started attacking the office of the prime minister, then they moved uh, to uh, another governmental building that entered the main hall of the National Assembly and what happened to the Speaker of the Parliament, how brutally he was beaten by dozens of people, that was something that I personally could not really expect. You know, Armenia is a small country and I often joke that uh, in Armenia everyone is either a relative or a classmate, <laughs> just because, you know, people know each other, but at the same time also the country, the society is uh, quite atomized and it was difficult for me to imagine something like this, such level of violence and anger, especially kind of leading to the destruction and even to the attack at Ararat Mirzoyan. So that was, that was probably the most surprising uh, when I realized that actually the Armenians, they can somehow, you know, come together and, uh, and they can start also <laughs> attacking and doing some, some really very bad things. And the other thing uh, that I can probably remember, and this is not really surprising, but at the same time, it's quite dramatic for me. I mean, seeing the mothers, you know, of uh, missing soldiers and uh, those who uh, have their sons now who are prisoners of war in Azerbaijan, um, how they were sitting in this prison call in the beginning of January in front of the defense ministry or commissariats and asking for um, responses of, uh, about the fate of uh, their beloved people and seeing people sitting there in, in such a cold and yeah. uh, still demanding answers, that was kind of something, I, I don't know if that was surprising, but uh, I, I saw Very something painful, like this before. I saw something like this in other contexts and I know that their voices become marginalized. Unfortunately, their pain stays with them. Mm-hmm. So I hope that it will not happen in this context, but still, you know, I mean, we are kind of, uh, I'm, I'm against seeing something that I, I've seen before. Well, you are right. The, the fate of the Armenian POVs in Azerbaijan still continues to remain uncertain. And recently, Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs Sergei Lavrov has announced that Armenia returned all Azerbaijani POVs, while dozens of Armenian POVs, including four women, are still in Azerbaijan. So what kind of leverage do you think Yerevan still has left to use to bring them back home? Well, I understand that our, uh, this is a top priority issue for Yerevan and it probably will stay this way. I understand that the issue got caught uh, in something different, you know, in this political debate around the mandate of the Russian peacekeepers because 
the guys are there for a number of weeks now and we still haven't seen the prescribed mandate of what the Russian peacekeepers are doing there and uh, what are their responsibilities. We have been hearing that Armenia already signed the document in December and uh, it's still kind of, you know, mm, part of the debate uh, going on between Baku and Moscow. Uh, and uh, one of the issues there, it has to do with this Azerbaijani demand for the full withdrawal of the Armenian troops from uh, not just uh, the adjacent territories, but actually from uh, Nagorno-Karabakh itself, from that territory that is currently controlled by the Russian peacekeepers. Basically, you know, this uh, issue, I understand, it just got caught in this political debate. As you know, more than 60 prisoners of war were detained after the ceasefire. Mm-hmm. And on January 11, 2021, I mean, during a couple of weeks ago, leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan held their first post-war meeting, the summit uh, to be precise, and together with the Russian President Vladimir Putin, Nikol Pashinyan and Ilham Aliyev signed an agreement to create new transportation infrastructure, uh, which aims unblocking the region's many closed borders. People were thinking that the question of the prisoners of war would be probably um, priority uh, during the summit, but it wasn't. The question that stays here is, do you truly think that unblocking closed borders will eventually lead to peaceful coexistence? Or first, we need to focus on democratization in Azerbaijan and also reconciliation between two states? It was not surprising that the issue of prisoners of war was not part of the agenda. Uh, That was uh, the Armenian side that was pushing for the discussion on the issue, And I understand that it was discussed uh, at that meeting, and that was uh, the meeting not just of the Armenian and Azerbaijani leaders, but also the Russian president, which is really very important. The fact that they signed that statement, it's a follow-up to what is already included to the ceasefire statement from 9th of November. And who says what was something in the interest of Armenia? No matter who comes to power in Armenia, I mean, if... If you, for example, have uh, some lengthy and normal discussions with people who were in the Armenian leadership or who are currently in the Armenian leadership, they perfectly understand that one of the biggest problems uh, that Armenian economy has uh, is the fact that it it is limited uh, in terms of the transportation routes. And it is Mm -hmm. because uh, of the closed border with Turkey and also the lack of relationship with Azerbaijan. So that thing uh, about transportation, it's something that actually is very much in the interest of Armenia. I mean, in terms of the development, uh, economic development, uh, probably also a possibility for the Armenian citizens to uh, get additional incomes. And not just uh, from the fact that there will be more cars, you know, moving back and forth, but also from the fact that there will be a possibility to also get foreign investment, more foreign investment than uh, than it's now. Mm-hmm. So it's... Um, but without trust, it's going to be possible to actually kickstart this kind of economic relationship between the regional neighbors. You have to start with uh, something small, right? And what, what is currently discussed is not economic relationship. They are discussing transportation roads. Mm-hmm. Economic relationship for that, I mean, I think it's still a long conversation. Because usually for economic relationship, you still have to have some certain official relationship. There are none between Baku and Yerevan, and also between Ankara and, and uh, Yerevan. If you read carefully, this by a statement from November 9, they are not just discussing the cargo, the transportation of cargo, but also the, the possibility for residents, citizens, mm-hmm. to travel back and forth. Even you do not have official relationship, 
it's really very difficult to imagine that, for example, Armenians start traveling to Azerbaijan and, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And um, establishing diplomatic relationship, it's a long way. It's a long shot, really. One would imagine them actually starting with uh, intermediary, you know, like, for example, uh, one neutral country that is uh, representing the rights of the citizens, you know, uh, in Azerbaijan and Armenia and maybe in Turkey and Armenia as well. Mm -hmm. Or the other way is also to um, to have special invoice or special consulate, uh, you know, emphasis. A as you can see, no one is discussing it yet. <laughs> For <laughs> so, now, no one so will take a risk. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is, this is what I'm trying to say, is that uh, don't kill the idea uh, when it's not there yet. When it comes, then let's have a conversation. Trust will be the issue for a long time. Okay. You cannot base your foreign policy and your also policy decision and related to the governance just on the emotions, right? And you have to think more rationally uh, how how to overcome some of the grievances that you have or and how to defend your own interest in that. I'm not just saying that, okay, guys, let's just forget about the war or war crimes and, uh, and all of that. But what I'm saying is that uh, uh, this is in the interest of Armenia. Let's think how to do that so that uh, the interests are, uh, are in place, you know, they are met, so that we can start moving forward. I think another big question, which is an obstacle on the way to moving forward, is the status of Nagorno-Karabakh, obviously. And um, we have seen that, uh, again, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Lavrov, said that it's not the best time to raise the issue of the status of Nagorno-Karabakh, referring to the absence of an atmosphere of trust between Armenia and Azerbaijan. If that so-called trust isn't formed in the next decade, while Russian peacekeepers are still uh, in Artsakh, uh, I mean, we have for, for now visibility only for 10 years. How do you see the future? Uh, yes, but then if it's extended, they're going <laughs> to... Then you can say 15, 20 and so on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, how do you see the uh, the future of Nagorno-Karabakh status? Can Yerevan and Stepanakert still achieve something with diplomacy or everything right now is in Russia's hands? Let's look at this issue from a different perspective. Yeah, we are now left with this post-war situation when uh, we got uh, a new, let's say, line of separation. No one gave the, uh, the name, official name for it yet. And that uh, line of separation is very close or sometimes even in the midst of, of the villages. So it's not like what we had, for example, after the first war. In Karabakh, when the civilian areas were separated from the trenches by kilometers, um, what is the priority? I think the priority is certainly to, st to find a way to somehow settle the life on the ground so that people have a chance to return and have some certain certainty, you know, about the future and future of their kids mm -hmm. so that they can go back reconstruct their houses and continue living and having a normal or kind of new normal life, yeah? This is just like one example. In this situation, if you start pushing for the status issue, then you will not have most probably any kind of uh, relationship or communication taking place between the military on the ground, which is essential uh, so that you can have a chance to, to control and bring more certainty um, to the situation there, to the light there. Uh, just because, you know, Azerbaijanis will say that we do not recognize you, and uh, uh, the Armenians will say that we will not speak to you unless you recognize us. And then the, the process is not moving forward, really. 
There are many more examples like this. Uh, when you have to find a way to settle with post-war situation. Mm -hmm. I, I think I do not fully understand uh, with concerns uh, about with a proposal to wait a bit, uh, you know, with the diplomatic process. After this war, we are left with a situation when uh, Baku does not want to speak to the current Minsk group co-chairs. Mm -hmm. uh, in Armenia, we are all expecting some political change. We still do not have mandate for the Russian peacekeepers. We cannot even uh, understand whether there will be any discussion at the UN Security Council that can, you know, kind of set up some certain rules for the engagement between Russian, uh, Russia and Westerners uh, in terms of the humanitarian support, you know, or engagement with Nagorno-Karabakh in future. Mm -hmm. and, and so, I mean, there are so many unknowns. Uh, in, in this current situation, that you, when you push uh, the for the status issue, you should understand why you are doing that and what you are actually spoiling by doing that. Uh, and, and in this uh, current situation, honestly, I would not be very worried. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe when we speak in a year, I, I will tell you that I was wrong. The French uh, leadership said that they understand that uh, the status issue should be resolved. Mm, you quoted Foreign Minister uh, Lavrov. He said exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, these guys went public. I can tell you that there are many more people who, who say exactly the same in, in closed-door conversation or some of the conversations that I attended, you know, mm -hmm. with foreign diplomats and international institutions. Maybe the fear is that with, uh, without a status, uh, Azerbaijan would have a one more incentive to had another aggression, and Armenia, we all know that Artsakh and Armenia are not ready to, to defend themselves for now. Maybe that's why they are rushing, because with the status there will be at least more bureaucracy in case Azerbaijan decides to, um, to escalate the situation again. Then I do not understand why Armenia did not recognize independence of Artsakh during the war. Yeah. That's so, fair. Look, I mean, there are different things there, right? I mean... Uh, so one thing is, uh, when you are an Armenian official and you call for mm, negotiations or kind of con consultations on the status because you uh, understand uh, why it's needed, at least a resumption of the conversation. The other thing is when you are a foreign diplomat or a mediator or international organization or even, you know, people like me who are analysts, you know, and, and we understand the call, but at the same time we understand the urgency of some other issues that most probably will not move forward if we actually start with something that is very much kind of in a deadlock right now. Mm -hmm. So one is recognition, when you call for the recognition, and I perfectly understand that, and this is a position, and I respect it, yeah? And the other is when you call for the resumption of the conversation or negotiations of it. These are two different things. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about another uh, regional actor, which is Iran, we have seen that uh, this week Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, is in the middle of his six-party cooperation union tour, as he calls it in the Caucasus. He has been to Baku, to, to Moscow, he has been to Tbilisi, and last night he was in Yerevan. He's going to finish his tour in, Tur uh, in Turkey. Zarif said that his travel is intended to upgrade cooperation among the six countries and make coordination on other regional issues as well. So there are two questions that I want to ask about this. Why didn't Iran demonstrate such an initiative during the war? And can we really expect that this six-party cooperation union will be efficient or performant or viable at all? Well, you know, Iran uh, is a big country, 
that uh, had its own kind of, you know, preferences and opinions about uh, the conflict even before the war. Also, we saw that during the war, the deputy foreign minister, uh, he had a tour, you know, he toured uh, the main capitals and uh, seems like uh, the main reason was actually to uh, to make sure that everyone understand Iran, Iran's red line. And um, right now we see that uh, there is um, some sort of vacuum, I would say, you know, on the one hand, you have Russians on the ground who are pushing for different things. Yeah, we can see uh, Turkey now present in, in the region, but who else? There is this question in the air, like uh, who, who will be taking part in all these different processes related to the diplomacy and also reconstruction on the ground. Mm. So, I mean, uh, the fact that uh, Iran has its, uh, its interest in, in terms of kind of connecting with, through the region to other outside world, um, it's, it's not something new. Iran has been discussing it uh, with Armenia and Azerbaijan and other countries even before that. I would not really try to look, start looking for something, you know, something really very bad taking place there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's actually very positive that foreign minister himself, he took time and uh, he's touring uh, all the capitals and trying to see, you know, what, uh, what is left there to be done and uh, what can be done in future. Mm-hmm. And considering the statement that he made in Baku, which uh, went viral, uh, obviously in social media, that uh, Iran is happy that Azerbaijan took its territories back and that he said that they were happy to help Azerbaijan with reconstruction. It was just one day, uh, if I'm not mistaken, after they signed a, Iran signed a trade deal with Armenia. So the question is, uh, uh, to which extent Armenia and Iran can have a committed relationship? Because it's it, it's a very weird and dysfunctional relationship. In Armenia, everyone wants to see Iran close to Armenia and relies on Iran on many questions. Everybody says Iran is, is an important ally. So can we really think of Iran as an ally to Armenia? Or is just a completely separate individual actor in the in the region who has only his personal interests and will not, again, cross his own red lines, even if it's for Armenia or for Azerbaijan. This is the worst thing that can happen when people define their foreign policy just based on their emotions. Mm. Uh, the fact that Iran supported territorial integrity of Azerbaijan is not new. Mm-hmm. Iran is in general, uh, has this kind of very strong position, and um, I heard different ideas why this is the case. Uh, one senior and an official told me that we have our own territorial problems, so we will not be supporting anything like this. The fact that Iran supported territorial integrity of uh, Azerbaijan, this is not new. And uh, I, I don't understand those people who actually try to uh, to look at this world only through this black and white perspective. Mm-hmm. Iran is a very important partner of, of Armenia, and uh, it shares the same border. And um, I mean, in terms of the transport, you mentioned trade agreement. There can be more communication around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, minister, uh, Iranian minister, he actually made a very important statement uh, in Yerevan, right? I mean, he said that our red line um, is uh, territorial integrity of Armenia. And I think this is also should be seen as positive by those who actually have fears that Azerbaijan or Turkey can now start another campaign, you know, to, for example, to take some parts of Armenia. 
So, I mean, mm-hmm. again, foreign policy is not for emotions only. <laughs> Absolutely. Another actor which has been quite absent during the whole war, even in the negotiations and even a post-war reality, is the USA. Right now, when the U.S. has a new president, uh, there is a lot of speculation about Biden administration and its allegedly very pro-Armenian stance, um, especially after the remarks that the already confirmed Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, made about uh, their intention to strengthen Armenia's resilience and protect Artsakh's uh, security. So if you try to be objective and not be emotional, as you said, are there any real opportunities for um, for Armenia to exploit, seeing that Biden has a relatively less favorable attitude to towards authoritarian leaders, which means to, to Turkey and Azerbaijan? Look, the Biden administration has a very clear agenda, and I think he spoke about this during the inauguration, and he has been following with uh, recent statements, uh, including his officials, The U.S. uh, has its own problems, and the U.S. will be looking into these problems. They have, I mean, the whole narrative of the inauguration, if you paid attention, it was all about the uh, divided society and Mm -hmm. the need to work on this. Uh, So this is the priority for the Biden administration. It's not Armenia. Having said that, <laughs> that does not, of course, mean that we will not be seeing a more proactive American administration that will be now back to the inter- international institutions, following international norms, supporting them. We definitely need it. <laughs> we want it, uh, at least at this level, the engagement of the U.S. administration in terms of the support, for example, um, to the process, to the OEC, to the U.N., uh, so that we actually start feeling that the U.S. is there and it uh, mm-hmm. pays attention to, to the developments. And first of all, it's not just kind of, you know, um, beautiful gesture. Uh, the U.S. took that commitment, right? I mean, to invest mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in, in, in the talks and, uh, and uh, different processes around the Karabakh. And it did. Uh, well, For some time, it, it was quite active. I mean, QS talk is one example. And uh, I think earlier in the podcast, uh, we had um, we had a guest who said that different actors invested different amount of time and energy at different levels of this uh, OEC Miss Group uh, peace process, but they're just all tired and they all have priorities. So in this case, it's it's really now up to Russia to resolve everything. So easily the US and uh, France, also with the face of the EU, will just let Russia to lead in the South Caucasus. Right now, again, I mean, why I'm saying this is so important to set up the uh, the life on the ground. Uh, Right now, whatever problem there will be, I mean, we now see with problems with the prisoners of war, right? Whatever problem, like a construction of the road, uh, water shortage, uh, uh, people getting killed, incidents, something, all of this is uh, something that will disturb any kind of process that you, you are to launch. No matter whether we are discussing official negotiations or even kind of consultation on the transport, you know, communications. And if we leave this whole thing just in the hands of Moscow, um, there are some actually <laughs> some problems with that because mm-hmm. Kremlin has many more things to do. It's a huge country with its own <laughs> problems, especially now. And it has <laughs> yeah, and that it has wars in some other places. And uh, Kremlin will definitely not uh, come and resolve your standing problems. So uh, and operational but, problems, let's say, and everyday problems which are essential to mm-hmm. the person who lives in Nagorno-Karabakh, right? I mean, the, what is the priority for that person to think about Biden's policy or to think about the kid who, 
who goes to school and uh, and you want whiskey to to return home yeah but uh, about the biden's administration i think we still uh, many many of us are asking this question whether actually the biden's administration will be ready uh, to take with nagorno karabakh as a separate case where they can cooperate with russians they will mm-hmm. have to contribute i mean if they decide to do that uh, then they will have to contribute you know with uh, different things and not necessarily with the american presence on the ground which is kind of concerning mm-hmm. to iran But the mining, example, that, humanitarian aid, uh, peace process, reconciliation, and all the soft well, stuff. You know, at, at least activate uh, the international institutions, uh, the OEC, the UN, and uh, for example, again, the UN uh, hasn't considered, hasn't discussed the mandate, the presence uh, of the Russian peacekeepers. There was no statement of the UN Security Council about the ceasefire statement. Um, if the UN has things to do, I mean, there are so many tools uh, that can be applied to that. And we can see that Russia is inviting uh, all these international organizations. So we still don't understand what what is Bokus thinking on that. But still, mm-hmm. I mean, something is happening. And if the US administration is to do something, they will have to coordinate and to work together with Russians. That can be done either bilaterally or that can be done through the international institutions or that can be done from the capitals, which is kind of uh, more concerning, to be honest, just kind of, you know, not to put, uh, not to create problems. The minimum, of course, what they can do is a humanitarian support. And we have been seeing that the, the American government has provided quite a lot of money uh, during the war to support those who were displaced from Nagorno-Karabakh and who were present in Armenia. The question is now whether there will be a possibility to do projects inside Armenian-controlled territory. Mm-hmm. Understood. Another crazy scenario which has been just circulating about Armenia's possible initiative in the um, Iran nuclear deal negotiations, because Biden saying that they are going to get back to their commitments, obviously. Uh, so Armenia had a, quite a big damage to its reputation because of our own internal failed governance, uh, lack of competency in some way. Um, so can we say, for example, Armenia can propose to provide technical or logistic support to the negotiations? Because there are rumors that Azerbaijan is is thinking about that. Well, Azerbaijan has been very good in providing premises uh, for some important discussions. For example, the NATO and Russian military they uh, around Syria, working on Syria, they met in Baku for a number of years, mm-hmm. if you paid attention. Well, uh, providing premises does not mean that you are taking part in the process. Hmm. Um, but they, if Armenia wants to do that, and if there are real, really chances for this to succeed, which hmm. I have some doubts about, <laughs> then why not? Honestly, I haven't heard anyone <laughs> considering that seriously. <laughs> I mean, that could be cool. Uh, also, you remember that uh, summit when Vladimir Putin came down to Yevon and also leader of Iran was there. So, I mean, uh, we understand that Armenia uh, also wants to kind of play its constructive role, contributing to some certain kind of processes. If if it is to happen, then it's, it's great. But there are so many other things <laughs> taking place and that are probably a big priority for the moment for Armenia. Yeah. So, so far, Yerevan's attitude toward Baku is very uh, complicated and maybe to some people weird. It's it's good. It's it's incomprehensive in some way. A lot of things that our current government is doing um, are not completely in our favor. Some people demand more collaboration. Some people demand complete uh, cutting borders, and we're not talking to each to each other anymore. 
So how, in, in the case of Armenia, because right now we're discussing the uh, Armenia, what should change in Armenia's attitudes towards Baku? Would any change matter if Baku is not inclined to actually having a proper dialogue or collaboration or reconstruction of relationship? Um, I don't uh, see a big tragedy in bilateral relationships. I mean, not uh, official ones. I mean, I mean in, in terms of kind of contacting each other and talking to each other. I think Armenia has been very good with that before the war. We haven't really seen uh, many stories about, like, for example, civil society getting punished or civil society organizations not meeting or getting prevented from meeting with the Azerbaijani mm-hmm. civil society people. Um, we know about the visits. And actually, it was constantly Yerevan calling, you know, and saying that we need more confidence-building measures, you know, we need more more projects like this around these topics. Um, well, now it's, the situation is different and uh, uh, something can change around that. I think there are people also who are worried about this, you know, whether... You know, many people left the this word, they're saying that Armenia and Azerbaijan, they kind of changed their places, right? I mean, and... Uh, um, and but I, I hope that we will not see, for example, security services uh, following civil society organization or civil society activists who are meeting Azerbaijani participants. Just, you know, it's something you already establish a certain reputation and there is a foundation there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have been following with rules for some time. If you cannot do more, if you feel that uh, there is no possibility to do more or you do not have, as you mentioned, trust, then maybe just leave what what is there uh, instead of actually creating even more problems and and by that attracting additional attention and uh, creating a negative in, in you know some image ar- around that. Mm-hmm. Well, about the fictional relations, I mean we discussed it already earlier, uh, but uh, at the same time, look, I mean during with Pashinyan time, uh, Pashinyan's time, we also had situations where the, when the guy had informal meetings with uh, Azerbaijani president. Unfortunately, that did not lead <laughs> to anything mm-hmm. positive, as you can see. But at the same time, with, uh, things like this happened in the 90s as well. They would certainly not resolve uh, all these grievances and uh, all masses of problems uh, and uh, many more problems that are to come on a daily basis in future. But, you know, when you actually have uh, some, some certain contact, uh, and if that contact is the functional, which is really very important, then then you actually have a chance to to mitigate certain problems or maybe find the ways how to resolve them in an easier way. And I'm not talking about uh, discussion on status mm-hmm. <laughs> to make the Azerbaijan recognize uh, Karabakh, right? I mean, I, I'm talking about some some lower level uh, issues mm-hmm. in the interest of both. Uh, many people kind of questioning, you know, what was happening, why Pashinyan was meeting Galif, and now kind of more information about some, some strange uh, meetings that were taking place. Then if you don't want things like this happen, then make it uh, public. You know, I mean, explain to your, mm-hmm. yeah, explain to your society uh, why you're doing that, uh, why you want to try, why you can seize it, you know, when you, if you see that it's not working or it's used for different reasons and try to get back in also maybe from your partners. Um, Mm -hmm. We saw that actually the Russian uh, leadership has been invested quite a lot uh, in recent weeks in in terms of establishing direct uh, contacts between uh, the Armenian and Azerbaijani security services or the prosecutor offices 
And I understand that the voice is going to continue. So, I mean, if you can have conversations uh, in Moscow, why not to, to think about, not again, not grand or huge issues, but uh, something that is, again, in your own interest. Very nice. Thank you very much. I think this is a, a topic which is developing with the speed of light. Uh, every day something new is happening. Hopefully, uh, the Pew Office, at least, we will be able to come back because I think it's a very important obstacle in a way to actually start thinking about what's next. Thank you very much for your time, Olesia. I hope this uh, discussion will be um, enjoyable to our listeners. We're looking forward to your analysis further on the topic. Thank you so much.